Black History Always, the podcast. Here's Clinton Yates. What a wild week it's been. Five days ago, ESPN's Baxter Holmes published an incredibly damning piece in which a couple dozen former Phoenix Suns employees and staff detailed the incredibly toxic workplace that has been the Valley's NBA franchise for the greater part of two decades. It paints a picture of a shameful operator who not only frequently used racial slurs apparently, but generally cultivated an environment of turmoil that pleased no one but himself. We talked to Lena Washington, sports anchor for the NBC affiliate in Phoenix 12 News, who is also a native of the city, about what it's been like on the ground. In Houston, the past week has been as horrific as you can imagine from the music world. Eight people did not make it home from the Astroworld Festival created by Travis Scott, the rapper. After Stampede went on for 25 minutes, the artists continued to perform, aware of what was going on in front of them, and nobody seemed to be able to do anything. We talked to Tadia Taylor, a longtime friend of mine and an event and festival producer for 10 years, about how that tragic event has affected the lives of not only those families who could no longer see their relatives, but the industry as a whole in terms of practices. To say it was a grisly scene is a massive understatement. Lastly, the Green Bay Packers' Aaron Rodgers just had to compare himself to Martin Luther King Jr. because he checks notes, refuses to get vaccinated against the deadly virus that's caused a global pandemic. Yeah, that tracks. Wait, no it doesn't. Let's get it, y'all. We're talking with longtime friend of mine, Tadia Taylor, who is an event and festival producer and has been doing this for a decade. We can get to our friendship later because that's not really important about that. Basically, our moms were good friends and we've known each other since we were children, but we haven't seen each other in decades. But we're talking about something because, frankly, you were the first person I thought of when I saw the horrible headline which was that eight people had passed at Astroworld, the Travis Scott function that happens on a yearly basis. And from just so many levels, a humanity level, a production level, an artistry level, it was awful. And I just want to get, before we get into the sort of specifics about what might've gone wrong or what could have been done better, what were your first thoughts when you saw the pictures and heard the news, Tadia? Um, you know, Clearly there was, you know, um, fear, sadness, alarm. I have several people that I work with and know and love that were there on site working, um, you know, including, mm. um, someone, you know, some people that I'm really, really close to. So my, my immediate thought was worrying about them and making sure that they were okay. I mean, obviously, you know, we're all very concerned, you know, being you know, a festival producer that like our audiences and our crowds are safe, but you know, also, you know, just as important as the safety of our staff and our crew and the people that are actually putting on the festival. Um, so that was, you know, where I went, you know, I went to both sides. I was just like, oh my God, these people, the crowd, the fans, but also the staff, are the staff safe? Like, how are they doing? Are they okay? You know, how are they being affected? I can only imagine what it must be like to be working at an event where such a massive tragedy happens, you know, where your safety is at stake, you know, as well as, well as just the impact mentally and emotionally, you know, on working an event that something this tragic happened at. What was the first thing that you as a professional looked at and said, that's wrong? That shouldn't have been like that because images get passed around over social media. And I think the average person can sort of look at that and say, well, clearly there's too many people there. But from your standpoint, there are things that you can see that are different just in terms of like, if you'd done this, maybe this would have been different or what have you. 
Well, you know, just from like reading the, you know, reading the stories, seeing the headlines, seeing some of the video footage, especially of these two young folks that got up on that platform, you know, that was one of the most alarming images for me was seeing these two young people get up on this platform and ask this man who was streaming this show for help, pleading to him, letting him know that people are dying. And you see this radio dangling from his pants. All he needed to do was pick up that radio and make a call. If anything, he had the power to pick up that radio, to call medical, to call security, to do something. And all he could do was usher them off and tell them that he was streaming and tell them that he's going to kick them off the platform. That to me is completely unacceptable. It doesn't matter what role you play, what department you're working in. Every single person that works on a festival site is responsible for the safety of the patrons and the people there. We have security meetings. We have security briefs. We go through all these things, you know? And I mean, what I automatically thought was that they must not have even done this. They must not have had a security meeting. I mean, I can't speak to whether or not that happened, right. but we, all the shows that I work, we make sure that our staff are aware of who to reach out to, of who to contact, how to do it, and what the protocols and processes are in case of an emergency of any kind. And it just didn't seem like that mattered to this one guy in particular, right? I don't know who he was. I don't know what his situation was, but- it, you know, I, I, I have since spoken with some friends that were there and the staff, there was no, there were no all calls. There was no correspondence on radio to the staff, letting them know what happened, including that breach. There was no communication to these people that there was something going on that, you know, it was just something that my friend told me, he, he read in the news, he saw it on the news, that that's how they knew there was a breach of security. You know, that's how they knew these things were going on. And that's just completely unacceptable. You've worked plenty of festivals of large size, so ones bigger than Astroworld. I'm thinking of Coachella in particular. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about more what you spoke to, which is what is the actual preparation method? I mean, how do those meetings go just in terms of the gathering and the size and the impact in terms of like, hey, when do you tell these folks, here's how we're going to do it from a planning standpoint? Right. Well, you know, I mean, obviously there are departments, your site operations departments and your security departments that have their own protocols and plans that are extremely thought out. You know, you know, most of most of your festival staff don't really know the details and the nitty gritty, but we are informed of exit routes, you know, of like what an exit strategy plan is if there, you know, if there's an emergency of a large scale. But, you know, for most of the shows that I work, there's a very clearly thought out plan down to the way the barricades are structured, down to, you know, where security and you know, police or you know, whoever you know is looking out for the crowd are placed. And from what I can tell from this show was that yes, there was an, a large amount of people present in terms of security, you know, and police force, according to the reports. However, where they were placed, a mix, you know, amongst the festival was not was not strategic in a way to to protect the people that were there. You know, there were no people placed in crowds. From what I understand, there weren't enough people placed at the front of the barricade. There weren't people placed at you know, in places that would have protected these people or helped them in the event of this happening, especially in a festival where we know that this, this is the notoriety of, of Travis Scott and what he incites at his shows, like they should have been prepared for this. They should have known that something like this could have happened because he encourages it at every single one of his shows. So there's all, for me, there's ultimately no excuse for what went down. Yes, we can't prevent every single thing that happens. You know, tragedy is going to happen, but there should have been extra preparation and specific placement in preparation for knowing that something like this could have and would possibly happen. 
How do you feel about that in terms of Travis Scott and the relationship between his artistry? And I'm using air quotes here because I don't happen to believe that inciting violence is artistry. But, you know, and what he does on stage. I mean, there's a lot of people that take what you just said and said, well, they should have known in terms of the patrons. This is what you get. But you don't go to a festival and expect not to come home. You know what I mean? Especially not by your own choice. I mean, there was so much involved with just our feelings about the nature of what is artistry versus what is danger versus what is expression versus what is a job. I mean, I, I, I still can't really wrap my head around that. And I don't even do this for a living. You know, it's, it's just, it's an interesting thing because there are plenty of other genres or not plenty, but there are other genres that um, maybe, uh, cultivate a specific kind of the sort of aggressive culture that there is to it. But if you go to a ska show or you go to a punk show or you go to like one of these rock shows where they encourage moshing, there is an understanding in those cultures where they pick each other up if people are falling. People are helping each other. There is, you know, it's not just a, like a free for all. And I mean, when I talk, I mean, like even when the show sold out, he made a statement, he, he tweeted that he said, nah, we're still going to be sneaking other people in. Like he encourages this kind of behavior. He literally calls for it. There has been reports he was arrested and charged for encouraging someone to jump off of a third story balcony at a show who then in effect broke his leg. You know, I mean, it's to me that, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm getting old. It's like, you know, the culture of things are changing, but I, you know, being someone that has worked at many different kinds of shows, hip hop shows included rock shows, you know, raves, everything. I've never in my life seen anything like this. And I've never, you know, not to say that this hasn't, things like this haven't happened in the past, but they're quoting this as one of the deadliest festivals in U.S. history. You know, the fact that someone, that he didn't stop, you know, that this went on for 40 minutes before he stopped. You know, I, I just, I just can't even fathom like the, the, the anger and the frustration. And that's just like, I mean, it's infuriating to think that, the show to, for the show to keep going was more important than the people's lives that were being lost. The people that were being trampled in sinkholes of people. Like, how is that even a thing? How is it more important for you to keep the show going and to keep inciting rage and violence? You know, when people are losing their lives, it's unfathomable to me. One of the things that I remember from going to hardcore shows as a kid back in DC was that the rules of the mosh pit were so expansive that getting in wasn't even about violence is that you didn't want to break the rules and have somebody end up throwing you out and losing your fun. I mean, break that down a little bit for people who don't really understand mosh pits are not just about abject violence. You know what I mean? There is an order to things. There are certain breakdowns depending on what the genre of music is that keep things safe, even if they are ostensibly violent, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, I honestly, I mean, I can't speak to, you know, I've only been to one show. I think we went to a Green Day show, I think. Yeah. Like, I was at Mary, not Mary with the quotes, it was at George Mason or something back in the day. But <laughs> that's outside, of, that's like outside of D.C. in Northern Virginia, for those of you who don't know. <laughs> and, but, and I remember I actually physically, like, they called for the crowd to charge and I got thrown, like, I, you know, got pushed and thrown and somebody picked me up. You know, that was the nature of this culture that there is. I mean, I've never been to a show where there was like, you know, a legit mosh circle, but I've seen shows where there's almost like this flow, right? Where you see this circular motion that's happening, you know, in mosh pits and there's people pushing. But like anytime someone is overwhelmed or gets pushed down, the people around them pick them up or they help them get out. There is a specific, I mean, I can't really speak to the rules, but I know that those rules exist. There is yeah. this in this culture of making sure that people are okay and protected when it gets too overwhelming or if they fall down and they're in, you know, in any kind of danger, 
Like that is fundamentally like something that is inherent in these places. And whereas in this Travis Scott case, like it's just chaos. It's not even organized chaos. It's just sheer chaos. And he calls for that. And he calls for people. I mean, he said things like there's more of you than them talking about security. You know, like it's just like it really is. He has really created this culture of anarchy and chaos at his shows that ultimately is putting people's lives at jeopardy, has put people's lives at jeopardy. Now that we know that there are confirmed eight, eight lives lost, children, 14 yeah. was the youngest person, you know, like, how does this happen? You know, and, and don't get me wrong. I don't, you know, I definitely feel that Travis Scott is, should be held accountable for this, but so should the promoters of this festival, mm. like who, from what I understand, have a history of this kind of thing happening, you know, of, of safety breaches and have, have ticks on their record of, you know, violence and, you know, in cases of like not having ample security or ample, you know, ample protection for their fans. And here's the thing, we are coming out, my industry is coming out of the most devastating time for us personally, that has happened in my career, in my lifetime, where we were the first industry to go down and the last to come back. Mm -hmm. Right. And we are finally just now getting back. And now this is like, and even furthermore, beyond the lives lost, it's now putting an entire industry at jeopardy, right? The amount, how difficult it's going to be to get insurance for festival promoters, how difficult it's going to be to continue perpetuating hip hop shows, hip hop festivals. Like this is just causing, you know, it's a ripple effect of how it's going to impact this industry and us being able to continue to produce and build events that people love, people enjoy, you know, and like furthermore, the impact on fans of wanting to go and wanting to buy yeah. tickets for fear of dying at a music festival, you know, like these are supposed to be places of joy, of fun, of unity, of just like people coming together to enjoy a shared experience, you know, through music. And now it's become, this has put this stain on it as a place of fear and danger. And that's just not the culture that we're, I, you know, I want to perpetuate, nor do I think most of the industry wants to perpetuate. We're also happy to be back and happy to be able to create experiences for people again that allow them to have these opportunities to join, you know, and and in unity and celebrating together. And now there's a stain on that. And 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 who knows how that's gonna impact our industry as a whole going forward, you know, which I you know, <laughs> no, I know I get it. It's, it's it's upsetting on every level separately. And I just I'm just wondering, this: have you ever been to a show that, that an artist stopped? I mean, one of the things we've seen on social media or, you know, recently sort of in, in on the Internet is examples of this going rather better. You know, when somebody gets overwhelmed or somebody gets knocked down and, you know, the artists themselves saw something and made a difference. Is that something that's ever been a part of your experience? I can't, you know, I feel like it must have been. I can't speak to a specific experience that that's happened at, you know, but I can speak to being at shows where artists were so aware of what was going on. Like, I think that there, I think I was at a James Blake show and someone was filming and talking and laughing and he literally stopped and was like, hey, I'm trying to play a show for you. He's like, maybe you could engage, you know? So that just to me speaks to the awareness of an artist to the audience and to the people that are, you know, they're engaging and, you know, really being present in that and actually, you know, caring about the experience of all the people that are there, you know, and how, you know, whatever is happening that may be distracting or impacting, I should say, to the overall experience that they're aware of that. So the excuse that they're not aware or they don't know what's going on. I mean, like at, 
Astroworld, people were literally saying, screaming, stop the show, stop the show. Like, it wasn't like it was just these two people. There were several people screaming this out. So, I mean, like for people, for the idea, the notion that he didn't hear it or he didn't know what was going on is completely, it's complete BS to me. Like there has to be some sort of awareness. But again, because of this culture that has been created around Astroworld and Travis Scott's career, I don't think that the protection or safety of his audience is at the forefront of his mind. It is just, it's this culture of chaos. And, and yes, there is the flip side that people know, you know, like that, because it is a culture that people know about it and whatnot. But again, no one expected to go to that show and die. Right. You know? Right. Last couple of things I'll ask you. I mean, do you, do you think from a legal standpoint that Travis Scott is going to, I don't want to say pay the price because that sounds trite, but do you think he would be held culpable in this in a way that is satisfactory to you as a, as a human, never mind a festival producer and, and I mean, event player? I think that he should. I think that Travis Scott and the promoters should both should be held accountable. I think the issue is because of the fact that there are not um, any legal charges on the whole, you know, pressed against these artists and these promoters and more so these pe- people, individual families suing them is the issue. There needs to be actual charges brought against the promoters and the f- the festival founder. I should say, not even the artist, because he is the founder of the festival. So take away the artist part of it. Mm. Like it's festival, I you see. know. Yeah. Um, they should be held accountable, but because if legal charges aren't brought up against them as a whole, you know, versus like these you know individual lawsuits, that's where the issue lies. You know, because it will just the lawsuits will happen. They'll settle or whatever. And then it'll just go back to either business as usual or there'll be issues with getting insurance and whatnot. But I think it really is the process of the accountability and how those charges are brought, you know, to the people that produce this festival and that created this festival. Last thing I'll ask you, what have you learned about yourself during this process? I mean, this is what your lifeblood is in terms of like how you present the artistry to others to enjoy, as you just stated. I mean, this is a blow to morale for largely the industry, but what about for you? I mean, for me, it just inspires me to be better and to do better. I always try to be really aware, you know, when I'm working a show or producing a show or, you know, working at a festival, I'm always aware. I'm always eyes on when I walk through what's going on. If someone looks like they're drunk or they're passed out, I always stop, you know, and see if they're okay or try to get security. And I, you know, maybe sometimes I think someone, I just think that it gave me an awareness to just be more aware, you know, and to be more conscious of what's happening because you never know, you know, you just never know. And we have, a great responsibility. Yes, we're throwing parties, but we're throwing parties for thousands of people, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people. And if you choose to work in this industry, you have to realize that it is ultimately your responsibility along with everybody else that's working there to make sure the people that are attending these things are safe. You know, we're throwing parties for other people. We're not throwing them for ourselves, even though we get to kind of enjoy them at times. Right. And so it is, you know, most important that we're making sure that people that, like if you host a party at your house, right? You want to make sure the people that leave your house get in an Uber if they're too drunk, right? You want to make sure that they get home safe or if they've gotten too drunk, that they're okay. Or you put them down, you get them a glass of water. It's the same thing. We're hosting parties, we're hosting shows. So we want to make sure that the people that are attending, our guests, are going to be okay and that they're going to get home safe at the end of the night. Adia Taylor, thank you for your time. Thank you. Right now we are talking to Lena Washington, 
sports anchor for 12 News in Phoenix. And five days ago, the bombshell report came out about the Phoenix Suns, what's going on with their ownership, the culture of that franchise, how it's affected things over the years. Now, I thought about you immediately, Lena, because not only do you work in Phoenix, you're from Phoenix. And obviously you're a woman and obviously you're a black woman. So all of these things intersected. And there are a couple elements of this that I just found rather fascinating. And I wondered, first of all, just what the local reaction was like in your market from a professional standpoint, never mind one from a fan standpoint. Sure. Yeah. I mean, thanks for having me, Quinn. Um, It was quite an interesting two weeks, right? It started with a tweet coming in uh, just before news time, Friday evening, um, a couple weeks ago that we were tipped off that a story was coming. Um, Through my sources, I identified uh, what outlet it was coming from. And then soon after the Suns acknowledged through a statement, multiple statements, um, that a story is being worked on at ESPN. And now we have read the story and have heard Baxter Holmes uh, recount his conversations with some 70 people currently or formerly with the organization, most notably Earl Watson, former head coach. Um, and we've seen how he and both former general manager Ryan McDonough responded um, after that story came out. And generally, the it, it's an interesting kind of mix of reaction and response from people both in media and fans here in the Valley. Um, People who have been following the team for several years, um, I would say generally were not totally surprised or shocked, right? To hear of kind of a problematic culture or language being used, I guess, Um, but still the content and the, the severity of it, according to these people who, were named some and some were not, um, is serious. And uh, we heard from Monty Williams and Devin Booker and Chris Paul uh, that night, and they all kind of just uh, reserved judgment until the investigation comes out. And fans, there were many who shared that sentiment where it was very much innocent until proven guilty. And there were some who took the stance of, well, if this is true, then there's no room for it in Phoenix or in the league. And you know, there were obviously immediate comparisons to the Donald Sterling situation, the correlation with Chris Paul uh, being there in L.A. at the time with the Clippers and now being here in Phoenix with the Suns. Um, but the difference there is that we had audio proof of this language being used, whether Donald Sterling knew he was being recorded or not. Or not. Right. Uh, we know in media, the audience needs that proof to really kind of understand a lot of the severity of situations, whether it be with language or assault or, you know, various, you know, awful instances that people can talk about, but might not be able to provide evidence for. Right. Um, So it's, it's mixed. It's people waiting to see if there's another shoe that drops. Um, There are people who think if that was going to happen, it would have happened already. Mm. Uh, But at the same time, this, could be a catalyst for more people to feel empowered to come forward, um, to put their name or their face to a story. Um, And like I said, we've had multiple statements from Suns partners, um, Robert Sarver himself. We did reach out to him for comment um, after the story dropped and he 
declined. Uh, we did understand that he um, responded to pre-submitted questions with Dwayne Rankin of the Arizona Republic. Um, really? Yes. So uh, we did see that he was speaking to local media shortly after the ESPN story was published. Um, we were not one of the affiliates who got to him yet. Um, okay. But, <laughs> um, you know, there there is still the kind of feeling that this could be the tip of the iceberg. Right. Um, and, you know, if that's true, remains to be seen. What we find from the NBA investigation will obviously determine a lot of the overall response, reaction, feelings towards the organization as a whole. Um, but it's also worth noting that John Najafi, one of the co-owners, the minority owners of the team, was the only person affiliated with the organization to really kind of step out and not directly deny the report or these allegations. He came from a stance of, if this is true, um, we will find this out. And it's, you know, these are very serious. And, and then days later, he showed up with one of his other business partners, Colin Kaepernick courtside at the Suns game. And I've only been home for about five months into right. a handful of games. And I can say I have not seen Colin Kaepernick <laughs> at any of the games leading up to right. this particular week. So the timing was interesting. Um, but we do know John Najafi is very invested in social injustice causes, pledging hundreds of millions of dollars to the NBA Foundation and other um, social justice initiatives. So to be correlated in this kind of report um, or association with someone who may or may not be found guilty, right, of, yeah. of, of using this language. We do know Robert Sarver admitted to pulling the pants down of one of his coworkers at an ALS bucket challenge. And that in and of itself, I think, objectively is inappropriate in any workplace. And I think, um, you know, just the admission of that and the acknowledgement of that happening um, you know, is somewhat telling whether or not we'll see any other uh, admissions of instances specifically or proof of instances that come out via audio or video recording um, will remain to be seen. Now, let me ask you sort of a separate two part question. Was this was this a one a one on the newscast or did this lead the sportscast? In oh, terms no, of this was breaking news at four o'clock across all outlets in Phoenix. From four, five, six, ten, um, we covered it from all angles. The Suns' angle, pulling video from Ryan McDonough's response, obviously asking yeah. uh, fans how they felt because the story drops the morning of a game here at home. So um, we we talked to fans. We obviously paid attention to the social conversation, which I found very interesting, um, especially again from someone who's been a fan of this team that was long irrelevant in the NBA. Well, that's why I don't want to, I don't want to jump in here, but that's why I asked, like, I think yeah. for people who don't know what the Valley is like, how important are the Suns relative to say the NFL franchise, the Cardinals or the MLB franchise, the Diamondbacks locally known as the snakes. I mean, where do they rank in that list in terms of how much people actually care about this team? Oh, well, as evidenced by their run in the finals, when they're good, it's an amazing place to be. The fans are fantastic. I mean, right now the Cardinals have a hot ticket in town off to their eight and one start. Um, but the Suns have been the Valley's team. We have said since over the summer that this is a basketball town. We saw, you know, almost 30 years ago, the whole city parade out 
to downtown Phoenix and a hundred degree temperatures right. to cheer on the losers of the finals, right? <laughs> so that same energy was very much felt here. When the suns are good, when it's exciting, it's all about the suns. We haven't felt this energy since Steve Nash, uh, you know, Mari Stoudemire, Mike D'Antoni days. Um, so they are, you know, especially with the proximity to our station, the arena's walking distance from where I work. So oh, wow. um, being able to kind of feel the pulse and see the energy like revived here in my hometown for after years of mediocrity has been great. But yes, this is absolutely a news story. We had news reporters on it. We had people making calls. We have our investigative team reaching out to sources. Um, This is a a big story here in the Valley. And Robert Sarver is one of the more prominent, obviously sports figures uh, in Phoenix for the last 20 years about. And so I don't want to come to this with too much ignorance, but I don't know who Robert Sarver is outside of being the son's owner. Is he a local business person? Like what, what, what is his footprint in Phoenix outside of, and this has nothing to do, not nothing to do with, but I'm not getting into what is alleged of him. I'm just saying, who is this guy outside of being the son's owner in terms of Arizona? Yeah, I believe he comes from family of bankers. So okay. grown up in affluence right. um, and you know, with that comes certain, I guess, maybe I, to say it best, maybe out of touch interaction yeah. with other people from different walks of life. And I don't know Robert personally. I've never met him. Okay. Um, I, I don't have a personal story, obviously, from interactions with him or really anyone in the organization. I know several people who have worked from, for the organization in various capacities. Many of them don't work there anymore, um, mm. but I do know some who still are employed after 5, 10, 15 years um, of working with the organization. So, um, And that was one of the things that I kind of said when this tweet first dropped was I can't say that I have any anecdotes from people personally to support, um, you know, this this allegation, this this story to come. But there clearly are several people who do. Black History Always, Clinton Yates, Lena Washington from the NBC affiliate 12 News in Phoenix joins us. One of the things that I think about all the time when we have these sort of larger stories is not necessarily the sort of raw accusations, but it's about what culture means, not just inside, but from an outside standpoint. You were in Sacramento for a while. You've seen how other NBA teams operate. Do you think this became a competitive disadvantage for the Suns in terms of like, who they could get and who they could keep and who wanted to be there, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because I was actually talking to uh, Cardinals owner, Michael Bidwell uh, a couple of weeks ago and kind of mentioned that Phoenix didn't really used to be a desirable place to to come play. Um, Great weather, great golfing, great places to eat. But in terms of wanting to build a career here and play for a contender, that hasn't been the case for a very long time. So um, you know, obviously with, with Starver coming in, we experienced the glory days and, and the runs and the playoffs, and that was great, but we've been far removed from that. So to have that kind of revived again over the summer um, was really important to this team. And I think, again, made it more of an attractive organization and destination. But, you know, same with the Kings. If you're <laughs> losing, if you're perennial losers, the organization is not a desirable place to 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 be or come play or work um, in general. And, and with that, you know, kind of 
deteriorates the culture within, right? If you, if things, winning masks everything right so no matter what's going on in the locker room and the in the boardrooms um winning and and delivering for your fans and having a, a satisfied fan base definitely contributes to that culture um i can't really say how much we have to kind of wait until the inve- investigation comes out i think for a lot of people to pass judgment and to see what happens next but as we've seen, there are this, the organization and Sarver himself welcome an investigation because they are vehemently denying that any of these conversations took place, that this language was not used, or that the instances that were discussed were skewed in a way that was not true to the reality. But we only a few people are there in those moments in space and time. So it's what Earl Watson said and thought and, and heard versus what Robert Sarver said and thought and heard and how, it, how that played out. Um, so it's, it's been an interesting time for the Suns. I yeah. think that they have handled it in a way that I, I truly expected. I, I don't think anyone was really um, expecting a major statement, so to speak, from the team. But knowing that if Monty Williams or Chris Paul or James Jones were to come forward and say something along the lines of what maybe John Najafi said um, in terms of not denying or maybe dismissing some of the claims, but rather wanting to get to the bottom of of what was happening. um, I think that would have turned up the heat. Absolutely. Um, But right now, uh, you know, I, I can say I've seen Robert Sarver at games with Larry Fitzgerald as early as October 6th. Okay. Um, and since then he has not been seen around the arena. Um, so Larry, Larry has been there, but we, we have not seen Robert at games um, in the last several weeks. So yeah. we'll see. It's, a, it's an evolving situation. I, I hear that. There's fluid, yeah. as we say, in the business. Yeah. Last thing I'll ask you, though, is – you know, for you personally, as somebody that's been around this industry in various forms over the past decade, for the lack of a better term, you know, and I don't want to be insensitive here. Was any part of this personally triggering in terms of reading about the experiences that a lot of these women had had, never mind black women, in terms of, you know, look, we can all say that we're growing as a business in terms of sports media and sports professionals. We can all look at different hires that have been made, different people who have been put in positions, women like yourself who represent the community well. And by that, I mean the sports community, never mind the black community. But the larger part of the reality is that there are still all sorts of glass ceilings and sharp hurdles that have to be jumped. What did you feel in terms of how far you've come in your life and career when you read this story? Well, Quentin, to be honest with you, I, you know, my mentor was the longtime NBC anchor, Bruce Cooper, and he had been here for 35 years, built all these incredible relationships, local guy, rose to sports stardom here. Um, he has long been my mentor, but between him and me growing up in the Valley and working in media and, and asking around, um, I'm the first person to look like me and do what I do in mm. my hometown. I'm the first black woman to anchor in a local sports station or a local market, um, or I should say Phoenix, a local affiliate doing sports specifically. Um, I can't say that I've seen anyone do that at the Fox regional network here in arena host. 
Um, we've had several women, obviously, hold those positions from Katie Christensen Hunter to uh, Lisa Matthews, Alicia Blanco, um, all of these fabulous, strong women, but they have never looked like me. Mm. So for me to be in this position in my hometown, I don't take lightly. And I want to, I want to represent a group of young women who might've been misrepresented or felt invisible for a long time. And uh, I have been very fortunate to work in markets and with teams where I have felt respected. I have never been, at least to my face, right? Uh, right. Subject or, or, or spoken to in a, in a misogynistic, disrespectful way. Um, I've never felt that energy wherever I have been so far in my career, but that is not the experience of, of many women as we've heard and read and seen. So in that regard, I am very fortunate, but that is not to say that that's not the experience of other women who work in organizations, outlets, um, with teams, and for as much as we see it changing and, and more opportunities going to women and, and women of color who are qualified and capable to do this job and occupy predominantly white male spaces, um, there are still those who refuse to acknowledge the change and in, in what is acceptable in society, the language um, that is acceptable in the workplace, or even if it's with a tone, right? Um, so it's been tough to kind of wrap your head around how, if that's the culture that, it, that people have experienced, I mean, all, all these feelings are valid, right? Whether it's somebody who has been subject to this or someone who is accused of something that they might not have done. I, I don't know. I'm not the NBA. I'm not investigating this, but we know People have come forward to talk to an ESPN reporter about their experience. And we know that the NBA is looking into it. Um, and I hope that whatever is going on is sorted out and this organization can move forward. And this is not a black eye on the team that has showed so much promise and has brought so much life to the Valley. Now um, Monty Williams, I mean, we, he is so beloved and respected here. What James Jones obviously has done in, in numerous markets and what he's done with this franchise executive of the year um, is noteworthy. So there is a lot of excitement and a lot of eyes on this team. But for this to come out now is is disheartening and uh, certainly not the last time. I'm sure we'll be talking about it this season. Yeah. Well, she's Lena Washington, 12 News, NBC affiliate, sports anchor. Thank you, Lena. I appreciate your time on this. We're friends, but, you know, in a professional context, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm a big fan, as you know, and uh, next time you're out in the Valley, we'll go uh, play some catch. That is exactly what we're going to do. Appreciate you. You spoke to us. Now we'll speak to you. Here's Talk Back. Here's the number one problem with lying. It's that if you get caught, the effects of said lie are often more injurious than the potential gain from the dishonesty to begin with. In the case of Aaron Rodgers, however, that's not been the case. After pretty flagrantly flouting the league's COVID protocols, he managed to only get fined $15,000, which is less than what CeeDee Lamb got for an untucked jersey. Tells a little something about who matters to the league, apparently. 
And for what it's worth, what he got fined for was attending a Halloween party, not for gallivanting around press conferences and sidelines without a mask, which is mind-boggling. Predictably, he went back on the same show Rogers did that he initially went full crackpot on and apologized. Here's the sound. From Pat McAfee's show. So I just want to start off the show by acknowledging that, you know, I made some comments that, that people might have uh, felt were misleading. And, uh, you know, to anybody who felt misled by those comments, I take full responsibility for those comments. And I'm excited about feeling better. I'm excited about moving forward and hopefully getting back with my team and getting back to doing what I do best, and that's playing ball. It's been tough to be away from it. Um, I've been, you know, obviously dealing with uh, the COVID, and I feel like I'm, uh, I'm on, on the other side of it, thankfully, and thankful uh, to still be able to uh, have something to look forward to this weekend, hopefully. I mean, okay, buddy, it's hard for me to believe that this is as genuine as it could be simply based on the original nature of what the quarterback had to say. Feels like he's mad that he got caught, not genuinely understanding of how reckless his behavior has been. Thankfully, the god Kareem Abdul-Jabbar came through with some wise words. He wrote a column on his Substack, and here's what he said on MSNBC. Uh, you point out that the reaction to Aaron Rodgers is very different than the way people reacted to Colin Kaepernick. Talk to me about that comparison. Well, I, I think uh, what Colin Kaepernick did was make a peaceful protest uh, at the beginning of uh, an NFL game. He, he did not endanger anyone's life or uh, cause anybody um, to have to be concerned ab about their health. Um, what Aaron Rodgers has done is, is totally beyond the pale uh, with regard to the danger that he's put his, uh, the, the people he works with, his family, his friends. All of these people have... Uh, they have to uh, really throw the dice when they're around him because he is uh, someone who is carrying a uh, COVID-19 virus. And, uh, you know, saying that uh, he, he uh, immunized himself is just a, a play on words to, to, to keep the pressure off. I, I think it, it's, uh, it's shameful what he did. That dude is a legend, so he'll get the last word. See you all next time, folks.